Welcome to the College Sports Insider, presented by the NCAA and Champion Magazine. I am Jack Ford. So, since 2010, Dr. Mark Emmert has been the president of the NCAA, and I'm sure many, if not all of you, have seen him talking about issues that are confronting the world of college sports. Uh, but you might have had some question about, well, just who is Dr. Emmert, and, and where did he come from, and literally and figuratively, how did he get here? to the NCAA, and we thought, well, maybe we'll answer some of those questions for you. So we're delighted to have Dr. Emmert joining us today. Mark, it's always nice to see you. Good to see you. Great to be uh, with you on the podcast. So let, let's, uh, let's kind of get away from the, the bigger cosmic issues, and let's talk more about you and, and how you got here. So we, we um, it's the line from the book, to begin my life at the beginning of my life. You start <laughs> off in, in Fife, Washington. Yes, tell the me thriving about, tell metropolis me about, yeah. of Fife, Washington. <laughs> tell me about Fife, Washington. What was it like when you, when you were growing up there? Well, the Fife of uh, my youth was a little town, about 1,500 people, um, uh, an agrarian town, converting post-war era into a suburban town between Seattle and Tacoma, Washington. Uh, sitting in a beautiful valley, uh, the Puyallup River Valley, really fertile soil that, uh, that lots and lots of uh, people migrated to. To, uh, to mostly run vegetable gardens, big, big uh, vegetable gardens and truck farms, they were called. And so as kids, we all grew up working on truck farms and working mostly for the, uh, the landholders who were mostly Japanese immigrants, interestingly. It's a, it was a very diverse place uh, while being uh, very suburban at the same time. I suspect that a lot of our listeners are probably saying, okay, what's a truck farm? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. Well, it's a small, it's a relatively small farm that, that um, commercial farmers would raise vegetables, lettuce, broccoli, um, uh, cauliflower, cabbages, those sorts of things, celery on, and, and could make a pretty productive living off of, but you could haul everything around in a truck. So you didn't need big, heavy equipment to operate it. You mostly needed access to a lot of young people to, uh, to work in the fields all summer. And, and every, literally every kid in, in town would go work on these, on these farms all summer long. First, first vehicle I ever drove was a, was a farm all cub uh, tractor when I was 13 or 14 or something on, the, on these farms. Tell me about your parents. So I, I am one of these really, really blessed people. You know, when you talk about people that have had a, a, a privileged upbringing, I, I was one of them. Not because not we had any money. We didn't have any, have any money. It was a very working class family. But I had a mom and dad that, that uh, taught me everything you needed to know in life. They taught me respect and values and uh, how to work hard and how to care for your family and your, and your community and your, and your country. They, they were... That classic um, post-World War generation that that um, moved out to the suburbs, got married just before the war when they were, my mom was like 19. My dad was, I guess my dad was 19. No, my mom would have been 17. My dad was 19 because he was just going off to the war. Got married, came back from the war. Um, my dad had been a been an uh, optical technician during the war, working on artillery. Uh, lost his hearing in large part because of it, and and so when he got back to uh, to the states, moved back to his hometown of Fife, Washington, where he'd met my my mom, both of them in the same high school that I met my wife in, and uh, he became an optician. You know, took his skills and and went to technical school and became an optician. And my mom was a housewife until I guess I was. 
middle school, and then she became a teacher's aide. So um, always had education around me, even though my parents never went to college. Looking back on yourself now, how would you describe yourself as a as a high school student? Well, I have a I have a cousin who grew up fifty yards from me, only child, same age as me. We're we're really closer than cousins. We're pretty much brothers. Most people thought I had two brothers instead of one because we were always together. And uh, he he's been wildly successful in his business. He's one of the most successful dentists in the world, in fact. And, and he and I loved a joke because we go back occasionally through our high school annual and and you look at the top 10 in a class of 100, by the way. We're not in the top 10. You, you, you look at the most likely to succeed. We're not on that page either. <laughs> you go through all the accolades mm. that, that the high schools give perhaps, out. We're, perhaps we're, most, if there was a category for most likely to surprise. Most, yeah, we might. <laughs> we probably would have been that. We, we were on every sports page uh, mm. that was in there because we were on every team you could be on. But, uh, you know, I had a really I had a great high school in, uh, experience, but it was – there, there, there's nothing in my background that you look at now that suggests I was going to be president of a major research university and, and move on to this job. What did you think you were going to do back when you were in high school? Had you formulated any real path that you thought you might be following? Uh, you know, when I went off to college, I thought maybe I'd be a lawyer because uh, I, I, you know, I didn't have a lot of, lot of professional role models. I, I, I didn't... Um, there, there were very few people in my social circle that had gone to college. The only college graduates I knew were my teachers and my doctor, right? And um, but I knew I knew our local judge, and he was a he was a lawyer, and he was a really nice guy. And I thought that's that being a lawyer that sounded <laughs> sounded pretty good. I grew up in this family of incredibly skilled craftspeople. Uh, they could build and and construct anything, and they and, and, and that's still part of the tradition of my extended family. Uh, and I, I joke, except it's uh, only half a joke, that my dad once saw me uh, in the eighth grade with a welding rod, laying a bead with a welding rod. And he said, son, you have to go to college. But he didn't mean it as a compliment. <laughs> he knew I had no other chance of being successful. So I always knew I was going to go to college. Uh, but I thought maybe I'd, I'd go into law. Uh, but I'd also, I'd fallen in love with the University of Washington when I was in junior high school. We'd, my cousin, that same cousin and I had gone up on a field trip to the university, and it was the most amazing place I'd ever seen. I, I didn't know places like that even existed, and, 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 I, and we, we wound up always talking about it, and I'd always half joke, you know, that, man, wouldn't it be cool to run something like that someday? And so uh, uh. I, I suppose way back there in my subconscious, <laughs> there was this notion that, yeah, you could... A bit of a seed There was there a seed. Someplace. Yeah, you could do that, and we but, joked about it all our lives. Yeah. One other thing I want to ask you about in looking at some of the, the, the stories and, and conversations you've had with people and you talked about, you know, at that stage thinking maybe being a lawyer might be interesting. But I thought I also saw you say, or I might have thought about racing cars. Where, well, where, I'm where'd more, that come I more from? than thought about yeah. it. You know, so, so um, you know, again, sort of the working class community, but I also had uh, family members that were car nuts. And, in fact, one, one of my cousins, a, a different cousin, uh, now has a very, very successful business uh, 
in the, uh, I guess you call it the hot rod market, making uh, exotic components for, for high performance cars. So I grew up around, around that a lot. Um, I had this wonderfully patient mother. I literally one day was rebuilding an engine in, in a Ford Mustang. And I, I said, Mom, I, I need a clean place to do this. Can I rebuild the engine in my bedroom? And <laughs> God love her. She said, sure, just keep the smell down. So I, I, I grew up around around cars. And, That's a good mother, by uh, the she, way. Oh, my gosh, she yeah. was the best. And and um, and then when I, when I got um, toward, I guess it was, I guess I'd started college. I finally fell in love with sports cars. Bought an old beat-up Austin Healey and and made it work pretty darn well and got into autocrossing and and driving a little bit on tracks and and when I went to graduate school I literally was thinking wow you know maybe I should get serious about this auto racing thing and and had looked seriously into um, going to Europe and trying to drive but I had people prudently say you know you're already too old <laughs> and and at, at at an eighteen nineteen twenty you're already getting old to go into that game so I. I uh, sold everything I had, including my beloved Austin Healey, and decided, Ooh, do I go racing or go to graduate school? Yeah, that's painful, selling <laughs> oh, off hard. the Austin Healey. It was hard. Uh, <laughs> I gotta, now that you've, you've mentioned this, i got to remember, next time you're in New Jersey, I've got to invite you over to my house because I've got an old Triumph, a TR6 sitting in the driveway that needs I, some work. I just, so I just, I say, I, Mark, come on over and visit, have, have, have dinner, and here are some tools. I you didn't go to know that. I rebuilt, I rebuilt a TR6 and, yeah. and actually sold it just a few years ago, just two years ago. got rid of it. Yeah. They're, they're, they are fabulous. They're wonderful cars. So let, let you you end up then after falling in love with the University of Washington as a, as a, a very young man you actually end up going there and but it, it was it was kind of a different path so you you took a year before you got there you know finances you talk about a yeah. you know a family where you know it's it's a hard working family and they and there are two of you you and your brother and costs so you ended up and I, I think this is an interesting sort of message for folks out there. Um, you didn't go directly to the University of Washington. What'd you do? Well, I went to Green River Community College. Uh, Washington State, like many places now, has a really strong community college system. I could keep working and live at home for a year, um, <laughs> keep my sports car, uh, <laughs> and and go to school. And that turned out to be a really good decision. You know, it was a uh, very good first year of school, uh, had some really good faculty there, piqued my interest in some subjects that actually in one or two cases stayed with me all through my academic career uh, and, um, you know, allowed me to save up some money and then and then uh, go up to the university uh, the, the following academic year. So when, you know, <laughs> a lifetime later, when I find myself running the University of Washington, <laughs> a president, nobody really runs a university, <laughs> Uh, I, I had great affection for all of our students who transferred in and came from similar backgrounds. So uh, I, I, I did go again. Went at it in a very different route than you typically see. I didn't. I didn't exactly come out of the shoot and go to Yale to play football like some people I know. <laughs> <laughs> so you get to the University of Washington and this this you know magnificent institution. Um, and you go in there, again, not being entirely sure, still sort of thinking maybe law, maybe something else. Do you remember when it was that you, you started to discover a different path and you started to think, you know what, that the world of the academy, you know, the, the academic world, maybe that's where I belong. Do you remember how that happened? Yeah, I remember it very uh, poignantly. Um, it wasn't, well, at Washington, I had a, had a 
extraordinary faculty member who just passed away just, just recently, a guy named Tom Presley, a Civil War historian, uh, fell in love with, I was a political science major because I thought that's what pre-law was supposed to be, <laughs> right? Uh, but also loved history, and and I'd go into Professor Presley's office, and he had one of these old offices, you know, full of books and a very sagacious sort of guy, and I loved his lectures. He'd, he'd finish up a class section, he'd get a standing O. You know, he was one of those kind of very compelling lectures, soft voice, but just could tell a story, bring history alive. And and I remember thinking how cool his environment was, and that was very attractive to me. But it wasn't until I went to graduate school. I, I left Syracuse, I'm, excuse me, I left Washington for Syracuse, took a two-week two vacation, hmm. started a master's program in public administration at the Maxwell School at Syracuse, because at that point I thought, okay, I don't really want to be a lawyer. I'd fallen out of love with that. Instead of law school, I'll go do this. And and I thought I wanted to go uh, work in uh, maybe city management, be a city manager, something in a in a governmental realm that, that was involved politics and more practitioner sort of oriented work like like management work. And um, I got there and I'm taking a class in um, in organizational behavior and I, I write a couple papers, really love the class. And I had a professor there come up to me and, and, and say, uh, you know, uh, have you ever thought about staying on and taking a PhD? And, and the thought never crossed my mind. And I, I remember saying, why would I do that? <laughs> yeah, why do I, I may have more said, years why as a student. Why would I do yeah, that? <laughs> and not make any money. And be, yeah, be, I'm starving yeah. as it is, man. What are we doing? <laughs> and he said, because uh, I think you really think like an academic. You really th- approach these issues like somebody who intellectually really cares about this stuff. Well, I do. And I, so he, he really stopped me started me thinking about it. And as soon as he said, you, you should think about becoming a professor, I immediately thought about Tom Presley in that mm-hmm. office that I'd been awestruck in. So it kind of and, reawakened that yeah, notion. Yeah, and, and so t- so my notion of being a professor was Tom. And one of the funnest things that happened to me, profes- to me professionally is, you know, 100 years later, I get to go back to the UW as as president, and and Tom Presley's still around. Oh, He's wonderful. an emeritus professor. He's still teaching a bit, and I get to take Tom out to coffee and and tell him that story. And and we were friends, and uh, before he passed away, it was it was uh, it was very very special. You know what's nice about that is oftentimes we don't get a chance to to thank those people until perhaps in a eulogy sometime That's right. down the road. That's right. So for you to be able to come back to this man and, and, and share how he inspired you is a, a great blessing for you. Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah. and, and I've, I've had a few of my Ph.D. students or master's students come back to me years later and say, you know, I'm doing this job because of that yeah. I had one say, I'm doing this job because of that one lecture you gave, you know, and, and I, I can't remember the lecture, of course, but it, it had some impact on, on somebody, and, and man, that feels good. I don't think people often understand how, how a, a single figure, and as you said, maybe even a single lecture, can change the course of somebody's life, which, which uh, to me, once again, shines a light on that value, that transformative value of, of, of the college experience. Do, do, do you think that, that there are more people, you know, I had something similar to you with a professor that sort of sent me in a direction. Do you think there, there are a lot of people similar, similar experiences that you and I have had where somebody in college has said, this is, set them off on the path that they would eventually follow? 
Well, I, I, I know so. And uh, one of the reasons that I'm so drawn to sport is because I think that happens all the time, especially in a collegiate sport environment, because the the potential for that is so um, obvious. You know, it's the, the, the whole environment is just full of these great little moments where a coach can have a profound impact on a person because you're you're either elated with victory and excited about it or you're struggling through something hard or you just had a miserable loss. I mean, I, I, I'll, I'll never forget being in a locker room. Uh, I was president of the University of Washington. Um, we had a very good basketball team, Brandon Roy, who goes on to become an NBA, NBA Rookie of the Year the following years on our team, great young man. And, and we just lost to Connecticut, a school that I was also <laughs> affiliated with. We just lost to Connecticut in an in a, a, a Elite Eight round. We would have gone on to face um, um, George Mason, who we would have matched up really well with. And so a real serious shot at a Final Four. Um, and, and we lost in the last five seconds. Kid makes a dumb inbound pass and gets stolen. UConn wins. That wasn't that was a pivotal play that everybody remembers, but there are a, a, a dozen of them that come to mind during that game. And I go and, and I mean everybody's just like their heart's been ripped out of them, right? And I go into the locker room just as a fly on the wall, and and um, Lorenzo Romar is a coach then, wonderful, wonderful guy, and and Lorenzo sits down and he has to deal with these kids who just you know had their dream ripped <laughs> ripped away from them, and and he was perfect. He just, it was, he, he just explained to them what, that this, you know, what this meant and how, you know, how they were, should deal with it. And, and I kept thinking to myself, those young men, every time they have something tough go wrong in their life, they're going to go back to that, that perfect moment, that awful <laughs> perfect mm-hmm. moment, and remember that. And, and uh, yeah, you see that all the time in sport. You see it in the classroom. You see it in these these circumstances where people are either going through great discovery or great anguish and um, and you get a chance to have an impact on a life it's very special yeah and and it's a message that more people need to know about I think let me let me come back then so uh, so so you have somebody who sort of discovers within you this notion of an academic path um, where do you travel to? Because it, it's it, it's a journey. <laughs> it's, it's a journey. A, you know, I, I thought we well, could, if we if you and I were doing this on television, <laughs> we'd have a big map behind us right now, and I'd have you yeah. putting little pins in that map as you go from coast to coast and sort of loop around again. Yeah, my wife and I, Delane, we laugh about our lap of America, and we're <laughs> halfway onto the second lap now. Um, well, I did the only sensible thing. I, I moved to an Indian reservation. <laughs> sure, that's right there. And you open up the book saying, "Here's yeah. the path. This is where you go first, right? Yeah, okay. How did you get? How did you get there? And why?" Well, I kind of had my Peace Corps moment. You know, I, mm. I, I wanted to stick around higher education, so I take a job. But I, but I did really want kind of a Peace Corps moment too. And 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 I also so in my personal life, I'd fallen in love with this girl of fifteen, and we'd we'd stayed connected but you know like a lot of relationships it vacillated wildly between love and hate you know and <laughs> and, 
and you know just madly in love with each other and can't stand each other at the same time and that had gone on and off and on for years and years and this was one of those moments where we couldn't stand each other and it was kind of painful and so that also made me think that a romantic place like an Indian reservation <laughs> yeah. would be the right place to go and <laughs> and write a novel or something so I was I don't know 22 or something three and, and, and so um, I take a job at Central Wyoming College working, uh, running all their BIA programs and their financial aid programs and everything. So I was working in Riverton, Wyoming, and and spending most of my time on the Wind River Indian Reservation. Uh, Wonderful place with all of the stark beauty of of Wyoming, and at the same time, all of the challenges and dysfunctionality of an Indian reservation. I'd grown up uh, with lots of, of Native American kids, the Puyallup Valley, Puyallup's obviously an Indian name. In fact, my house had been on, what I grew up on, had been part of the original reservation land. So I had a lot of friends and neighbors who were, who were Puyallup Indians. The kids I grew up hunting with, uh, duck hunting with and stuff were all Puyallup friends. Um, so I was familiar with a, a lot of that, but I'd never been on a res before, and I'd never seen the heartbreak and challenge and difficulty. And here was this punk kid, you know, who thought he had a Syracuse master's degree. I am a smart dude. I know what I'm doing. And and I hadn't a bloody clue. I mean, I learned so much in a couple of years doing that about human nature, about about myself, about what what challenges real people have. And that's when I realized how blessed I was as a kid, you know, to have this family around me and this loving environment. And and being blessed had nothing to do with money. It had everything to do with the right people. And, um, yeah, so I, I went there and um, and then in the middle of that decided that I actually, the, the, that girl that I hated, I actually <laughs> did love and, and invited her to share this crazy life and move this wonderful, wonderful woman from the University of Washington to the Wind River Reservation and literally a single wide trailer on the res. How could she say no to How that could she, offer? I mean, right? could I, it, just women just melt in, yeah, your, in your hand. Of course they did. You know? <laughs> yeah, God love her. She uh, moved there, and we stayed there for about six months until she's not even that, I don't think, until she said, you know what, I'm moving to Colorado. You're welcome to join me, but it's not necessary. <laughs> not terribly subtle. So we got married, moved to the res, right. and, and after a little while she moved to uh, Colorado and to finish a, a second degree at Northern Colorado and and um, I had to finish up my work and so then I I followed my wife to Colorado. <laughs> when did you because eventually as you mentioned you you uh, became the the head of a number of of significant academic institutions. Did you go into that thinking that's where you wanted to be or were you thinking of of teaching and then eventually it evolved to all right, the leadership role is something that I want to assume also. Yeah, it's really the latter. But, um, you know, because I, when I went to get my, get my master's degree, I was already thinking about um, organizations and management, and I was really focused on that sort of intellectually as well. So it became a fairly natural evolution. But I, uh, we go to Colorado for my wife to finish up her, her um, second degree. She got a degree in special ed and elementary ed. And and um, we then pick up a son, <laughs> those things happen. <laughs> so we realized, okay, we've, we, if I'm gonna go get my PhD, you gotta do it now. 
So we load up a one-year-old son and, um, and all of our belongings in a U-Haul and drive back to Syracuse, uh, where I finished my PhD, um, start down a faculty road, wind up um, eventually as a young professor at the University of Colorado in the Graduate School of Public Affairs there, which is based in the Denver campus, as well as Boulder and Colorado Springs. And, and um, I guess I'm there six months. And the dean comes up to me and says, uh, hi, I need a new assistant dean. You want to do that? And I basically said, well, what does it mean? He said, it means you get paid for summer salary. And I said, I'll take it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Forget about so what, I, it, what it entails. Yeah, I got, I got as long as we've established the important part of it. Yeah, here. I got summer pay. And, and oh, no, by the way, at this point, I had a, a, a daughter. Yeah. So that summer pay is a big uh, deal Summer pay right is now. a big deal. I got summer salary, and I, get, and I got it one course ro- uh, offload so I can do more research. Uh, and so I did it, and I enjoyed it immensely and stayed with administration. Yeah. So you, you end up, um, you, you mentioned, uh, ultimately, University of Connecticut, LSU, yeah. um, and then University of, of Washington. So you, you had a chance to, to, to lead these, before you get to Washington, these two marvelous institutions. Different in some ways, yeah, but yeah, a lot of similarities. Very, very different. And, and then you get invited to come back to that place, that, that, that sort of shining light on a hill that yeah. you saw when you were a high school student. You know, what, what was your thought about when you first came back? And here you and, and Delaney now come back. You're back home, literally and figuratively. Do you remember what you thought when you first walked into that office and you sat down and you said, I'm now the president of this place that to me seemed so aspirational when I was in high school? Yeah. It was surreal. Um, we, we, we did the press conference to announce um, my coming. I didn't come right then, but we did the press conference at the university, and it was in the spring, uh, and the quad at Washington is full of, of cherry trees. And they, were, they would always bloom. It's, a, it's this magical moment at the university every year. Uh, in April, and they 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 were in bloom right then. And uh, in fact, the cover photo from the university magazine columns, had, uh, they took a picture of Delane and I under these trees where we had dated, right? Mm-hmm. And and that we walked through every spring. And um, you know, it was it was just a surreal moment. It was um, magical, awe-inspiring, scary. Because you got this big sense of responsibility, um, and and um, you know at the same time it didn't feel like a culmination. It wasn't like a pinnacle. It's like okay, my you know I've I've done everything I'm going to do now. I'm president of the UW. It was it was it felt a lot more like a beginning than a, than a culmination. But it was very very special. I'll I'll never forget it. So you had a, a, a wonderful experience there. Again, yeah. how many people ever get a chance to really come home? Yeah, you know, almost. You, we, you talk in, about, in higher ed, very, very few get yeah, to do that. So you get a chance to do that. So the last area I just want to talk with you about now is, is this. You're home. You're, you're at a place where yeah. for both you and your wife, um, it, you had great experiences there. It's just this marvelous academic institution. What was the lure of the NCAA that would draw you away from from home? Well, Delane asked me that a lot. <laughs> well, we were, we were um, I- incredibly happy with what we were doing 
Uh, I'm really proud of what we were getting done there. Uh, It's it's an amazing institution. Um, But, you know, I guess first of all, I've always wanted to make sure I was adding as much value as I possibly can to an organization and to things that have impact on people. And and uh, when I was first approached about the job, I, I candidly, I kind of chuckled and said, y- y- you know, mm-hmm. you, you don't really want me to do this job. You mm-hmm. need somebody else. And I said, you do want to get a, a university president. Miles Brand had been the first university president to be president of the NCA. And as a university leader, I, I loved that. I always wanted to make sure. And, I, and every president that I knew agreed that, yeah, the NCA president needs to be a, a former university president because they really get viscerally what this is about and didn't want to lose that link. So I said, gosh, I'll help you find some people, but you know, I, I, I'm, I, I'm not the right guy for this. And so, you know, I sent some recommendations to the to the headhunter. I knew the headhunter well. And and um, then I had some fellow university presidents um, call up and say, you know, Mark, we really would like you to think more about this. And and the, the one compelling argument that really worked was this, this notion of leverage. And I guess it goes back to my years at the Maxwell School, the, the notion that you can affect policy and change in ways that has a bigger impact on society and um, young people in particular by, by changing policy and practice. And, and I hadn't thought about this job at all that way until th- that really came to mind. And so UW had 42,000 students. There's 475,000 NCAA athletes. Uh, the ability to impact even educational policy started to become pretty obvious. So it, what does that really mean? Well, you go and you look at what we did in uh, 2012, I guess it was. We, maybe 11 even, Early on in, in, in my tenure, the board agreed to raise the initial eligibility requirements for Division One, right, from 2.0 to 2.3. Well, how big an impact can that be? That doesn't seem like a big deal. Well, what that means is every high school in America has kids in it who aspire to be college athletes. And every one of them all of a sudden knows, oh, my grades have got to go up. Oh, I've got to take these courses in this sequence now or I'm not going to be an athlete. And, and it's not an impact on 475,000 kids. It's an impact on millions of kids because we collectively sat down and said we're going to change our curricular requirements and our GPA requirements. And you start to think about that, and all of a sudden the, the leverage of a job like this around educational issues becomes really apparent. And so it, it becomes this bigger stage, if you will, on which to affect lots of lives. And that was very, very appealing. And and so I s- sat down with Delaine and said, "Look, let's let's think this through a little bit more." And, and she said, "Okay, fine." <laughs> 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 but you need to know she she actually went kicking and screaming back to Washington, which was a big surprise. She had fallen in love with Louisiana and her Louisiana friends. This whole and that's easy to do, by the way. It, it's very easy. Me there. too. I, oh my! I, you know, I I never would have left if it wasn't for Washington. Yeah. I would still be there uh, because I I love the place and 
and mostly I love the people and this whole, you know, steel magnolia notion of women and these deep friendships women have, man, she was full on into it. And still today, her, some of her closest, dearest friends are her Louisiana friends, and she did not want to leave them. Uh, and so so I, she is... She gets to go right to heaven, that woman. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and she has a space for her. We know Delaney yeah, well, and indeed, she's been marvelous. Yeah. <laughs> There's a space reserved for her up there. Last quick question for you here. What do you think the 16, 17-year-old Mark Emmert back in Fife, Washington in high school would have thought if somebody ever said to him, you know what, I think down the road you're going to become a university president and ultimately the president of the NCAA. What do you think that Mark Emmert would have said? Well, he would have laughed. Um, uh, 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 but then I suspect he would have listened to his parents. Mm-hmm. And, and his parents would have said, yeah, that could happen. Yeah. Uh, even though they, you know, they didn't know how to advise me about college. They, 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 they couldn't tell me which college to go to or what to take. or they, they didn't, That wasn't their world. They they made clear to me that I could do whatever the heck I wanted to do. Just just roll up your sleeves and get after it. Don't don't whine. Don't I don't want to hear anything about any of your problems. Just get after it. And and so after I'd sat down with them and and chatted, I might have thought, huh, maybe. Yeah. Maybe the great message of your life and certainly the parents' influence on your life is what you just said. That could happen. That could happen. Yeah. yeah. Hey Mark. A pleasure, as always. My pleasure. Thanks for spending some time with us. That does it for today's episode of the College Sports Insider, once again presented to you by the NCAA and Champion Magazine. Thanks for joining us. I'm Jack Ford. We'll see you again soon.